This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and this week you can call me Ishmael, because I'm about to talk to you at great length about 19th century whaling. I'm not even kidding. We'll get back to our series of awesome interviews in our next episode, but this week I'm feeling the need to indulge my latest special interest. I was going to save this, but the news cycle had some other ideas. So I went to sleep Sunday night, and I felt like I woke up in a nautical horror story worthy of H.P. Lovecraft. Now, I spent a decent amount of time reading the news, and the ocean is all over it right now. First, it was an article in Newsweek. Seaweed full of flesh-eating bacteria hitting Florida. Now, I know what you're thinking, but Marjorie Taylor Greene is not visiting Disney. It turns out that all the plastic and toxic trash in the ocean breeds necrotizing fasciitis, a flesh-eating bacteria that will definitely ruin your vacation and could actually kill you. Word of advice, do not Google pictures. Next, impossible to miss and horrifying to contemplate, is the Ocean Gate submersible Titan, which went missing on Sunday with five people on board and has been dominating the news ever since. The submersible was headed to see the wreckage of the Titanic in one of the deepest and most dangerous parts of the ocean, and as I'm recording this, rescue efforts are currently underway to hopefully recover the Titan and save the lives of those on board who, as of right now, have less than 24 hours of oxygen remaining. Just thinking about it gives me a panic attack. Listen, I like the beach as much as anybody, but I do not fuck with the ocean. It is bigger than you can imagine, largely unexplored, and it can kill you in any number of horrible ways. Take, for example, whales. Over the last few weeks, there have been stories all over the news of whales sinking ships, Recently, orcas have sunk three ships and damaged others around the Strait of Gibraltar. People have observed that they're stealthy about it, approaching ships without making a sound and targeting the parts that would do the most damage, and, even better, teaching other whales to do the same. One eyewitness saw a mother whale teaching a calf to attack a ship. Oh my god. <laughs> now, there are a lot of memes going around about this, with plenty of people being Team Whale. They seem to be going after rich people's yachts, but why are they doing it? Well, it seems to come from trauma. When whales are hurt or attacked, they understandably get angry. They fight back, and they're smart, so they sometimes teach others to do the same. But this isn't the first time whales have organized to fight back. During the Golden Age of Whaling, whales learned to avoid whaling ships, drawing sailors out to increasingly remote parts of the ocean and, in some cases, sinking their ships. This week, I'm talking about 19th century whaling, some surprising uses of whale products, and a few high-profile cases of whales sinking ships. Now, there is evidence that humans hunted whales as early as the Neolithic period. The meat from a single whale could feed a small village for months, but it was the demand for whale oil that led to the explosion of the whaling industry in the 18th and 19th centuries. Before kerosene, 
Lamps inside the home and out burned whale oil. It was used as a mechanical lubricant, greasing the machines of the Industrial Revolution. Corsets and umbrellas held their shape thanks to whalebone, and the brightest candles were made from clean, burning whale oil. American colonists around Nantucket started hunting whales at the beginning of the 18th century. Hunting whales is not easy, but they were driven to it because the soil in that area wasn't great for farming. They killed their first sperm whale in 1712, and they must have thought they struck gold. The most prized whale products came from the sperm whale, ambergris and spermaceti. Ambergris has been used in some of the world's most luxurious perfumes for centuries, mentioned as early as the 11th century in Nicholas of Alexandria's Antidotarium Magnum. It was brought to the West by Arab merchants. Its rarity, binding properties, and earthy scent, not dissimilar to other animal-derived scents like civet and musk, driving up the price. More valuable than saffron, at one point, ambergris was worth twice its weight in gold. In 1791, England's House of Commons summoned a master whaler to explain what exactly ambergris was, then presumably wished they'd never asked. Ambergris is the half-digested fecal matter that forms in the digestive tract of sperm whales. Gross. It was obtained one of two ways, by hunting, which yielded a foul-smelling product, or by chance. Ambergris naturally vomited by a sperm whale would sometimes be found floating in the sea or washed up on beaches. Pieces could be huge. The Dutch East India Company once had a piece of ambergris weighing an incredible 975 pounds. But the best ambergris was found. The seawater weathered the ambergris for long periods of time, transforming the smell into something altogether more pleasant. Now, it didn't stop them from harvesting it from whale carcasses, however. In 19th century New Bedford, a 100-pound piece of ambergris could sell for between ten dollars to $20,000, or just about a million dollars in today's money. Absolutely incredible. But ambergris wasn't the only reason whalers hunted sperm whales. Nearly as valuable and far more plentiful was spermaceti, a waxy substance produced by the spermaceti organ inside the whale's head. It was named spermaceti, in Latin, spermaceti literally means whale sperm, due to its appearance. Milky white and liquid when fresh, it resembles male ejaculate. Ugh. Now, there are credible theories that spermaceti assists whales with buoyancy and echolocation, with up to 500 gallons of it in the head cavity of each sperm whale. Regular whale oil was still used for lamps, but the best oil and candles were made from spermaceti. Smokeless and scentless, it burned cleaner and brighter than whale oil, and it cost eight times as much. In 1850, Hadwin and Barney Oil and Candle Factory's annual output of 4,000 boxes of spermaceti candles and 450,000 gallons of sperm oil were valued at $300,000, or more than $11 million in today's money. New Bedford, Massachusetts became known as the city that lit the world. It was home to 640 whaling ships, more than the rest of the world combined and tripled. Whale products were shipped around the world, with New Bedford products reaching Europe, South America, and the West Indies. At the height of its success, New Bedford stocked more than 5,000 street lamps in London. At this time, New Bedford was the richest city per capita in the world. Whaling was so profitable and so necessary to American industry that despite its dangers, thousands of men took jobs aboard whaling ships, setting out on voyages that could take years at a time.
Can you imagine? You're not going away for a week or a month, but sailing for years to remote parts of the sea to hunt the largest mammals on Earth, knowing that if anything goes wrong, you could become stranded or drown. Still, lots of people did it. It was an adventure, but there were also few jobs that paid as well. Whaling was incredibly lucrative, and it was typical for the crew to split the proceeds from the sale of all of the whale products. If you had a few good trips or were lucky enough to find some ambergris, the money could set you up for life. Or oddly enough, it could even save your life. Now, most people don't realize that there was a maritime dimension to the Underground Railroad. Enslaved people in the South didn't only work on plantations. Many worked on ships in various capacities, and over the years, several used their sailing knowledge and seized opportunities to make their escape, sailing to the North in a more direct and less dangerous trip than traveling on foot. When they made it to the North, whaling was an opportunity to make sure they weren't recaptured. They could set out on a whaling voyage and be gone for years, only to return free and with a decent amount of money in their pockets. Whaling was open to men of all races. Many whalers were black, and there was even a black whaling captain, Absalom Boston of Nantucket. Whaling was big business, but it was also one of the most dangerous things you could do. In the second half of this episode, we're going to talk about how dangerous it could get. It's going to get pretty dark, so before we get there, we're going to have a little interlude talking about something quite a bit lighter. This next segment is about how whale products were used in 19th century makeup. Before the 20th century, lots of cosmetics were made in the home, with recipes for common products like soap, salve, face cream, and pomade appearing in popular recipe books and ladies' magazines like Godey's Ladies' Book, which was published in Philadelphia between 1830 and 1878. These recipes share a number of common ingredients, and among the ones we might recognize, like coconut oil and rose water, there are a few that are no longer sold at the store. One of the most popular ingredients for 19th century cosmetics was spermaceti. That almost no one has heard of it now would seem unimaginable to women in 19th century America. Their homes were lit with it. You could buy it at the market, and it was a great moisturizer. Spermaceti could be bought at the market for a number of household uses, and it comes up a lot in the recipe section of Godey's Ladies Book. Like, (laughs) a lot, a lot. So, because I'm a nerd, I've spent a lot of this year up to the eyeballs in old copies of Godey's Ladies Book, and I was surprised by just how often spermaceti comes up. I knew it was a whale product, but it was hard to imagine what you'd have to do with it to get it to a point where you'd want to rub it all over your face. So to help us understand this part of women's daily lives, I thought it would be fun to share a couple of these recipes with you today. These recipes come from different issues of the magazine from 1863. So right in the middle of the American Civil War, women were making their own cosmetics with whale products. First up, we have a hand lotion. For chapped hands, two ounces of white wax, two ounces of hog's lard rendered, half an ounce of spermaceti, one ounce of oil of sweet almonds. Simmer all these ingredients together for a few minutes, then strain the liquid through muslin and put into pots, to be rubbed well over the hands when going to bed, and sleep with gloves on. A cold cream for the face was made using a similar method, but next up we have a recipe for lipstick. Red lip salve, take of white wax four ounces, olive oil four ounces, spermaceti half an ounce, Oil of lavender, 20 drops. Alkanet root, 2 ounces. Macerate the alkanet for 3 to 4 days in olive oil, then strain and melt into the wax and spermaceti. When nearly cold, add the oil of lavender and stir it till quite firmly set. The color of this was probably more vivid than you'd expect. 
When you see this time period represented in TV and movies, a lot of the women look like they've never seen makeup, let alone considered wearing it. But Alkanet Root Powder, the dye used here, creates a lovely deep rose color that wouldn't look out of place today. And finally, we have hair pomade. To a flask of the finest Luca oil, add an ounce and a half of spermaceti, half an ounce of white wax, and scent of any kind. Cut up the wax and spermaceti and put it into the oven to melt with a little of the oil. When well mixed, pour in the remainder of the oil and stir until cold. Add the scent when the mixture is cool. If the hair is inclining to gray, add by drops a teaspoon of balsam of Peru, taking care to stir it in well. Now, Luca oil is a type of olive oil, so any Lucas out there don't have to worry about women hunting them with spears. Needless to say, these recipes were not cruelty-free or vegan, but they were popular and they seem to have worked. We'll never get to try them ourselves, which is honestly probably a good thing. Seriously, save the whales. But if you want to get very close, you can, and you probably already are. Since the end of whaling, jojoba oil has been found to be virtually identical to spermaceti, and now it replaces it in common cosmetics. So every time you use jojoba oil, think about those ladies rubbing spermaceti into their skin back in 1863, and know that your experience isn't a million miles off. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. All right, so in the first half of this episode, we talked a little bit about why people might want to work as whalers, and in this half, we're going to see why it was still a bad idea. During the golden age of whaling, an estimated three million whales were killed by the whaling industry. Three million. The whales knew what was going on, and in some cases, they actually organized to fight back. Now, some of this might feel familiar. Herman Melville's Moby Dick, written at the height of 19th century whaling in 1851, was inspired by a couple of high-profile cases. He took the name from a real white whale called Mocha Dick. Yes, you heard that right. Mocha Dick, as in what you get if you spill your drink in the Starbucks drive-thru. Incidentally, Starbuck is a character in Moby Dick, so maybe Melville was more prescient than you'd think. Well, anyway, Mocha Dick was a legendary sperm whale spotted off the coast of Mocha in Chile. He was unusually large and powerful, and he really was white. Over 28 years, he escaped more than 80 ships. Sailors said he was fairly docile, swimming alongside ships until he was attacked. Under threat, he fought back with strength and cunning, sometimes breaching so aggressively that his entire body would come out of the water. Now, for perspective, an average sperm whale is about 90,000 pounds and 52 feet long, and Mocha Dick was unusually large. Can you imagine seeing something like that? A huge white whale roughly the size of a semi-truck trailer jumping out of the water to sink your ship? You'd shit yourself, and a lot of people did. Harpooners were terrified of him, and with good reason. Over 28 years, he sank more than 20 ships. Because that's what you get for fucking with the ocean. Now, Melville was also inspired by the tragic sinking of the Essex in 1820. Before I get into this, I just want to warn you that this story was one of the worst things I've ever read. Maybe don't listen to this part right before you go to bed. 
Okay, you've been warned. So the Essex was an American whaling ship from Nantucket. In 1819, when it set out, it had already been sailing for 20 years, and it had a reputation as lucky. Its captain, George Pollard Jr., was one of the youngest whaling captains at only 29. He's said to be the inspiration for Captain Ahab and Moby Dick. His first mate, Owen Chase, was only 23. Chase would later write his account of the terrible voyage, publishing Narrative of the Most Extraordinary and Distressing Shipwreck of the Whale Ship Essex in 1821. The crew was made up of 21 men, including Owen Coffin, Captain Pollard's 17-year-old cousin. Before they left, his mother had entrusted his safety to Captain Pollard. Neither one of them could have guessed just how badly things would go wrong. The Essex left Nantucket in August of 1819, setting out for a two-and-a-half-year voyage to the west coast of South America. Only two days after leaving, the Essex ran into a storm and nearly sank, suffering damage and losing two of its whaleboats in the process. Captain Pollard decided to keep going without repairing the damage. By January 1820, the crew was on edge. Between the storm, the damage to the ship, and the unusually slow journey, they started seeing bad omens everywhere. In September, one of the sailors, Henry DeWitt, deserted the ship in Ecuador. It was the smartest thing he could have done. Finding their hunting ground empty due to overhunting, Captain Pollard decided to venture much farther out into the Pacific, heading 2,500 nautical miles southwest of the area he was familiar with. The boat started leaking, and they stopped at the Galapagos Islands to fix it. While they were there, they captured 300 giant tortoises to eat on their journey. Tortoises were a favorite food of whalers and pirates, and they were hunted almost to extinction during the 19th century. As if capturing huge numbers of a critically endangered species isn't bad enough, the Essex didn't leave the Galapagos Islands without causing some major damage. While they were there, helmsman Thomas Chapel set a fire on Charles Island, later called Floriana Island, as a prank. It quickly spread out of control, and the entire island caught fire, leading to the near extinction of the Galapagos giant tortoise and the Floriana Mockingbird. The fire was so severe that the crew of the Essex could still see it on the horizon after sailing away for a full day. It was two more months before the Essex found any whales. On November 16th, one suddenly surfaced directly beneath Owen Chase's whaleboat and smashed it to pieces. Four days later, a harpooned whale hit another whaleboat with its tail and escaped when they were forced to return to the Essex for repairs. Two whaleboats were down, but the whales were just warming up. Suddenly, the crew saw an unusually large sperm whale in the distance. It swam directly for them, picking up speed and ramming the ship. Not finished, it swam a few hundred yards away, then turned around and tried again. This time, the whale swam faster, ramming into the ship and crushing the bow. As the ship began to sink, the whale escaped. Whales 3, Essex 0. The 20 members of the crew split up into the three remaining whaleboats, fully aware their food and water wouldn't last them long. The closest islands were 1,200 miles away, but fearing the possibility of cannibals on an unfamiliar island, the crew decided to return to South America, taking a route that would cover 4,000 miles. 4,000 miles by sea with inadequate food. Can you imagine? They must have been terrified. Well, they finished their food and water within two weeks, drinking salt water and even their own urine to survive. Two weeks later, almost dead and desperate, the crew landed on Henderson Island and ate everything they could find, birds, crabs, and even grass. 
They were there over Christmas, and within a week, they had eaten nearly everything available on the tiny island. Still, it was better than being lost at sea. Three crew members decided to stay on the island, not wanting to chance the boats again. And they were right. Months later, they were rescued by the Surrey and taken to Australia. The remaining 17 men got back into the boats and headed out, hoping to reach Easter Island. Confused, they missed it and continued on, looking for another island. By the end of January, the men started dying. Matthew Joy and Richard Peterson were first. They were buried at sea. As others died one by one, the crew kept their bodies and, desperate, started to eat them. First was Lawson Thomas, then Charles Shorter, Isaiah Shepard, Samuel Reed, and Isaac Cole. The remaining boats separated, and one was never seen again. It is assumed its three remaining sailors died at sea. One of the remaining boats was Captain Pollard's. In February, out of bodies, the rest of the crew made a terrible decision. They would draw lots to see who would be killed and eaten next. The unlucky member was none other than Owen Coffin, Captain Pollard's nephew who he had sworn to protect. He was shot by his friend, Barsley Ray, who died only a few days later. For the rest of the voyage, the two remaining sailors survived by chewing on their bones. In late February, more than three months after the Essex sank, the remaining crew was finally rescued. Owen Chase's boat was rescued by the British ship, the Indian, and Captain Pollard's was found by the Nantucket whale ship, Dauphin. In the end, there were eight survivors of the disaster. Seven had been eaten, two buried at sea, three lost at sea, and one was living it up in Ecuador. Give it up for Henry DeWitt. Despite this absolute nightmare of a journey, all eight survivors went back out to sea within months of returning home to Nantucket. Still, they did not come out of it unscathed. Owen Chase wrote his account of the voyage, which would later inspire Moby Dick. He suffered nightmares and headaches for the rest of his life, and as he got older, he started hiding food in the attic of his house. He was eventually institutionalized and died in Nantucket at the age of 73. Captain Pollard returned to sea, but was involved in another shipwreck almost immediately. Considered unlucky, he retired from sailing and became Nantucket's night watchman. Every year, on the anniversary of the shipwreck, November 20th, he would fast in memory of the men who died. The story of the Essex is covered in Nathaniel Philbrick's In the Heart of the Sea, which was made into a movie directed by Ron Howard in 2015. The movie has an absolutely bonkers cast, including Chris Hemsworth, Killian Murphy, Tom Holland, Brendan Gleeson, and Charlotte Riley. So if you'd like to see this horrible story acted out by some incredibly attractive people, it's on HBO and Amazon Prime. You're welcome. You'd think the story of the Essex would put people off of whaling forever, but somehow it didn't. In 1851, the year Moby Dick was published and 30 years after the sinking of the Essex, another whaling ship, the Anne Alexander, was rammed and sunk by a sperm whale in the South Pacific. Fortunately for that crew, they were rescued within only a few days. Despite its dangers, horror stories and overhunting did not bring about the end of whaling. The whaling industry was effectively ended by the invention of the oil well. Kerosene was much cheaper than whale oil and much, much easier to get. From the 1860s on, whale oil was rapidly replaced with petroleum-based kerosene. There's a great illustration of the whales celebrating in an 1861 issue of Vanity Fair, which I will post on our Instagram. This week, I'd like to thank all of my high school English teachers for never making me read Moby Dick. High school is scary enough without going into detail about how spermaceti is processed. Thank you very much. 
I'd also like to thank our superstar patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayanna DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley-Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. As always, there are other ways to support the show as well. You can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Mastodon at Dirty Sexy History. We will, of course, post photos from today's show on our Instagram. You can also check out the website at DirtySexyHistory.com and find links to our guests and our online merch store there as well. There's a lot of great stuff up there, and we're adding new articles all the time. So stop by and say hello. We'd love to hear from you. Our sources today include David Cressy, World's Whaling Slaughter Tallied at 3 Million, Nature Magazine in Scientific American. Bathsheba de Muth, Harvesting Light, New England Whaling in the 19th Century. Kat Eschner, The Real-Life Whale That Gave Moby Dick His Name, Smithsonian Magazine. The Galapagos Conservatory, Extinct for 112 Years, Galapagos Giant Tortoise Rediscovery Confirmed. Edward Leslie, Desperate Journeys, Abandoned Souls. True Stories of Castaways and Other Survivors. Mike McGarren, The City That Lit the World, BBC Travel. Robert McNamara, A Brief History of Whaling, In Thought Company. Nathaniel Philbrick, In the Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex. Sally Pointer, The Artifice of Beauty. Nancy Schumacher, Oil, Spermaceti, Ambergris, and Teeth, Products of the 19th Century Pacific Sperm Whaling Industry, in RCC Perspectives Number 5, New Histories of Pacific Whaling. Derek Thompson, The Spectacular Rise and Fall of U.S. Whaling, An Innovation Story, The Atlantic. Timothy D. Walker, Sailing to Freedom, Maritime Dimensions of the Underground Railroad. And ABC Whipple, Yankee Whalers in the South Seas. Have a great week, guys. See you next time. <music>